This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. As 2019 comes to a close, we're proud to be close to celebrating five years and more than 300 episodes of Fashion Is Your Business. In 2020, we'll have all new exciting episodes that offer everything you've loved about the show over the years. Some conversations are timeless, as relevant today as they were when they first occurred. For the next few weeks, we'll be giving you a chance to listen again, or maybe for the first time, to some of the standout, timeless conversations we've had over the last five years. One of them is a dynamic and incredibly insightful panel discussion about the development of people, culture, brand, products, and structure necessary for growing and scaling a business. Strategies from the C-Suite. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. The following live audience program is sponsored by Notel. Your agile business deserves an agile space. Notel will find, customize, and operate your ideal office while you focus on your business. Find out more at notel.com. That's K-N-O-T-E-L.com. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Rako. Uh, so happy you're with us today. Recently, we had an incredible opportunity to present a remarkable panel on strategies from the C-suite growing and scaling your company. It was sponsored by Notel and presented at their experience by Notel pop-up at 666 Broadway in New York City. Uh, and this was just a, just a tremendous conversation about the development of people, culture, brand, products, and structure necessary to grow and scale a business. In a moment, you'll hear from uh, three very, very successful people who have grown brands at a high level, and the conversation was moderated aptly by Avani Patel, the co-founder of Ember and founder of Trendseeder. I think you'll benefit and enjoy this very informative and inspiring conversation presented in front of a live audience at Notel. Welcome everybody to our discussion on strategies and scaling. This is a great panel of experts who have spent time scaling businesses successfully who are here to, to tell us their ins and outs, things they wish they knew, and things that you can learn from. We're going to get started by having each one of you introduce yourselves. Terry, I'm going to start with you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. My name is Terry DiPaolo. I am uh, initially a lawyer by training who transitioned her career to being the chief operating officer and general counsel of Authentic Brands Group, which is a brand management uh, company. It's a portfolio company owned by uh, private equity. And uh, we built that company from its inception to the five years that I was there, um, from zero to uh, 100 million in EBITDA. Uh, it was a lot of work. And um, now I do some consulting work um, on the legal side and also on the consumer products business side. 
Great. Hi, I'm Steve Balciano. Nice to meet everybody. Um, I'm a lawyer as well by training. Seems to be a little bit of a pattern over here. Um, and I worked at some major New York law firms for my first eight or nine years of career as a bankruptcy lawyer and then had a very, very interesting opportunity to become the general counsel at the Children's Place retail stores. And I was part of the executive team that helped grow the company from at the time that I joined 70 stores and doing about $70 million in business to when ultimately when, when the movie ended, uh, we were, we were generating over 2.3 billion in sales across two brands and 1,200 stores. We owned the Children's Place and we owned 400 Disney stores at the time. Subsequent to that, I, I ran a couple of, I uh, got into the sourcing business and ran some factory bases in Sri Lanka and some uh, international businesses in manufacturing and sourcing globally. Uh, settled back home and of doing a, a bunch of sourcing, uh, I mean consulting, sorry, uh, for a bunch of different brands and different companies, including Sequential, who I've done some consulting for. I run a private label children's apparel group now, and I also have a legal practice. Uh, I am Jod Reddick. I have a rather eclectic background. My uh, parents were in the entertainment business, and I was raised in a family where they produced and distributed kung fu films uh, when it was a very, very exciting time in New York. And so we talk about scaling. Uh, if a movie starts out at zero... It could turn out to do a huge amount of money or absolutely nothing. So you have to be comfortable with scaling from an idea to two or three hundred theaters in a week. So uh, that's kind of in my, my DNA. My background is uh, both technical and, and marketing. Uh, one of the more interesting projects that I had was at DuPont, where I was the fourth guy responsible for marketing and strategic planning of the business unit that created rapid prototyping. Rapid prototyping became agile. So um, this was kind of the beginning of how software now gets developed. It's kind of everybody thinks of it this way, but there was a time when that, that wasn't the case. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. I've been a subject matter expert uh, in front of the Supreme Court on the next wave bankruptcy, so I've seen a lot of big due diligence projects with hundreds of people that have kind of come from nothing to a, a big project. Uh, we were the first guys in the prepaid calling business, which was no one ever heard of it. It didn't even seem like a good idea to a lot of people to what was uh, revolutionary in, in telecom and so um, some of the projects I've worked with. Great. So as we know, each one of you has successfully scaled businesses. But what we also know is as easy as you make it sound and look, it's not. So I'm going to start with the first question being, hindsight is 2020. What do you wish you knew when you were getting started that you learned the hard way? We'll start with you, Terry. Okay. Um, I, I think that the one thing that we missed was the human capital cost of expanding rapidly in anticipation of something happening and then pulling back that expansion when it didn't quite click the way we thought it would. Um, and going through that over and over again, I think it was taxing. It was taxing on the company. It was taxing on sort of the people who had to train people to get them up to speed and then we had to, you know, let go when something didn't happen. I think that a more steady and reserved approach in terms of adding staff and adding overhead um, would have been a wiser way to go. I wish we had done more of the freelance to hire kind of structures when you're building that rapidly. 
Interesting. Interesting. Um, my, our story is a little bit different. Um, as we grew the children's place, we had exponential growth. So we were always looking to hire and looking to hire the best and the most exciting talent that was out there. And we were actually interviewing all the time. Regardless of whether we had an open position or not, we were always looking for the best and the greatest talent that was out there. And our mantra was if we found the right person, we're going to fit them into the right box and we'll put them in the right seat. Because, you know, fortunately, we had so much opportunity with the growth of the business. But in hindsight, something that I learned, uh, which, which could be a misstep for growing companies, is when you're a smaller company, well, smaller, we were about 70, 80 million uh, at the time that we started there, or I started there. As we grew from 70, 100 to two, 250 stores, 500 stores, you reach certain juncture points, critical points in the growth of the organization. Um, and let's say at about 250 stores, that was the first pressure point. And certain people that were senior management that have been with the team from the beginning of time um, started to not necessarily perform at the levels that you would like for them to perform. And we saw that happen over the course of the years. At 250 stores, somebody wasn't at the expectations. At 500 stores, at 700, at 1,000 stores. The, the challenges became greater. The requirements became greater. So the question was how to deal with that. And unfortunately, or I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, what we did was you end up replacing and you end up building new talent. You know, you go out to the competition and we were looking at Gap and Abercrombie and all those other companies that were about, you know, 10 steps ahead of us as an organization. And we always said that the Gap merchant or the Gap real estate person or the Gap lawyer was going to be better or the Gap CFO or the Abercrombie CFO was going to give us a greater skill set that we didn't have. And although we probably did need that, it came with a cost, and the cost was the camaraderie we had as an organization, the teamwork we had, the family-type feeling we had as a smaller organization where there was no backstabbing, there was no politics. Everybody really worked harm, in, in harmony together. But that changed, and that dynamic changed over the years, and it, it got a little bit away from ourselves. So looking back, hindsight... Um, there has to be a better balance in trying to, and I don't know how you do that because if somebody is just kind of jobbed out, what do you do when you need to bring another person over them? Probably just need to be better at discerning the culture of that new person coming into your organization. So my, my guess, hindsight is trust your gut. You're going to be in a real pressure cooker a lot of times, and you're, there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of moving parts. And what do I do? What am I do? Everything I do hit a second now, immediately, quickly. And you need to step back, and you need to think about what it is that's really important here. There was a time in my first software company, we're building some software, and a programmer decided to extort a lot of money from us, and we had to decide whether to, to pay this extortion or to tell him uh, you're going to send him to prison. And we were really kind of nervous about this because we had some big contracts, and our attorney gave us some really wonderful advice. He said, things are never as bad nor never as wonderful as they may seem in the moment, and that allowed us to kind of take a step back and think, what do we really want to do here and not just respond and react, but really try to be thoughtful in, in what you do. And, and that's something I try to stay with me. So the theme, it seems, is people. People seems to be a very di difficult part of scaling a business. And I think, you know, as the as the folks who are listening, as the people in the room are thinking about hiring the right people, firing people when they need to, what is a good piece of advice to find the right people as you're scaling your business, but 
keeping in mind what you're going to have to do next. Steve, I'm going to point this one at you since you have quite an HR background. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was challenging. We we were always everybody. Our mantra at the company and at executive committee level was everybody was always an advocate and an HR representative to the organization. And everybody was always recruiting. And you meet people in the course of your dealings. You meet people on airplanes. You meet people uh, in Starbucks getting a cup of coffee. You meet people. You have friends that you play golf with. There is always that rapport that you have with people, especially when you have such a big field organization. There was always opportunities. You would walk into a Gap store and have some great customer service when you worked into that store. And then you would hand them your card and say, you know, listen, if you're not happy at the Gap, you know, we're opening up a store, you know, (laughs) two blocks away um, if you'd like to join our company. But I mean, I say it in jest, but we really did that. I remember being up in Montreal uh, we, we had just opened our first stores in Montreal and we were in a mall and I was with the store operations team and I was with, I was with, uh, in one of the stores in a Gap store. And we actually, we actually recruited the store manager there as we were there that day. Um, so you always have to have your eyes open for great talent. Great talent comes not every day and people that you think, and it's more than just talent. It's not just the resume. It's not just a piece of paper. I mean, when, when I would interview people and what we did at, at the organization as well is, I made it my business, any senior level person in the organization, and I'll call senior level anybody that was clearly a director and above, but even a senior manager, I would want to meet that person before we hired them. Whether it was a five minute, just shake the hand and come into the room, because you get a gut and you get a feeling of whether this person kind of fits into the filter that you've created at the organization. So, you know, what was important to us was always recruiting and, and really putting some types of controls in to make sure that people fit into what you were looking for off the paper, not just on the paper. And so as you find the right people and you bring them in, Terry, you hit upon this a little bit. What happens when it's not their fault, but the company just either may not be the right fit or just your needs are not quite where they need to where they need to be to support this person or all of these people that you're bringing in. How do you manage through that without, without harming company morale? it's It's a difficult position to be in and you do have to be sensitive to the impact that those decisions have to on the people who are around the one individual that doesn't work out, whether it was their fault or whether it was, you know, sort of company sort of false start. Um, I mean, honestly, I think just like anything else in life, communication to your team um, is going to be key in that situation to explain to them why it didn't work and why they're not on the chopping block next kind of thing. And maybe you don't say it that directly, but essentially that's the message you're giving, right? It didn't work with this person because it's not a, uh, you know, it's not a, a mass slaying. We're not, you know, everyone's not losing their job tomorrow and that sort of thing. Um and I, I mean, personally believed a lot in, um, in team building exercises and continuing to have that kind of a, a company as we grew. And so the, the exercises changed and what we were able to do with each other changed because of the size of the company. But being able to continue to have that, whether it was a pizza party at someone's apartment on a Saturday or Friday night or, you know, a, a happy hour um, on a Thursday or ice cream Sundays on a Tuesday, you know, or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on pe- National Peanut Butter Day. Like <laughs> we, we did do all of these things that I'm mentioning. Um, and it makes people feel a part of something. And I think that that's important. And then you realize some people are just going to come and go. It's a natural process. But I, I think uh, if I could add in. Um, I, I think also you have to do, you have to do damage control. 
So it's important. There are times that you do need to release people and terminate people and cut costs. You might have grown too fast. You might have thought you were opening in a particular district and for whatever reasons the deals didn't come through and now you need to lay off those people until ultimately you do open that that district or open that have that project start. However, I, I am I'm a firm proponent of you have to you have to do it all at one time. The worst thing to do in an organization is to do piecemeal job firing. It's a disaster. What ends up happening, you fire two people on Monday, and then on Friday you fire another three people. You wait three weeks later and you fire another two people, and everybody's coming to work just assuming that today's their last day at work, and they never feel comfortable. What you need to do is you need to do it in one fell swoop to the best that you can, is you have to attack it once and for all, and you have to eliminate the number of positions that you have to at that one time, and then you have to come out with a mass communication, which is, you know, no mas, the, you know, the, the cutting is over, we're going to consolidate now, you're all here, you're the future of the organization, and then you build up the morale in the team again. So we've covered a lot about people. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about scaling your brand. Hi, my name's Rebecca Fitz. I'm from Warby Parker. Hi, I'm Chris Hansen from Ignition One. We are hosts of Retail Is Your Business. Retail Is Your Business is a weekly podcast covering the intersection of innovation, technology, and business strategy in the world of retail, online and offline, across all industries, with a focus on consumer experience. We deep dive with insiders from industry leaders to cutting edge startup founders. Crucial insights, career journeys, trends, new ideas, and the state and trajectory of the retail industry become accessible with a fun and comfortable morning radio vibe. Listen to Retail is Your Business every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because retail is your business. You can follow Fashion is Your Business on social media at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. Episodes available at fashionisyourbusiness.com and listen and subscribe wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you and welcome back. We've talked about building infrastructure and scaling infrastructure with people. Now we're going to be talking about building the business side a little bit. You know, when you scale a business, you have to think about the brand. And as you build brand, you have to make sure that your core consumer is still happy as you bring in new consumers. So John, as you built these companies, how did you think about that? How did you build a brand without losing that core brand identity? We tried to take a look at where we wanted to be in a little while, not a thousand years from now, but two or three, and try to figure out what were the important things that needed to be operating properly at that point. What were the kind of people? What was the marketing going to look like? What was the technology needed to be in place? What were the financial considerations? So if you have a short-term goal and you say, can I do this? Does it really hang together? You now have a, a map. 
one person once said, write the user manual first, because that's going to tell you what the user experience is going to look like, and that's going to tell you how you're going to market it, what kind of customers are you looking for. So there are a lot of techniques that you can use, but the, the most important thing is to have a cohesive, consistent goal in mind as to what you want to achieve, and then the rest of it should actually fall reasonably well in place from that. Steve, as you were scaling from 200 stores to 500 to 1,000 stores at Children's Place, how did you make sure you were still being true to what the Children's Place stood for, but at the same time still growing the business and not cannibalizing your business? And how did you think about that? Um, our, our real estate expansion plans were very, very uh, strategic in, in how we looked at growth. Retailers look at growth and store growth in particular um, in two different ways. Some people like to open in the, in the best markets in the United States, and then they go from there. So they'll open New York, they'll open Florida, they'll open L.A., they'll open Texas, maybe Chicago. And those will be the most metropolitan areas. They have the most volume. The stores can be the most productive. And they figure that's the way to grow your company. And a lot of companies do that way. Um, what we did at the Children's Place was, was, the, was the opposite. We, were, we started off as a northeastern retailer, primarily just in the metropolitan New York area and kind of up to Massachusetts and Maine. Um, and then we slid down the coast a little bit. Uh, what, what, when we started to grow, we went market by market. And it, it, was, it was a concerted effort of growing across the United States in a, in a more focused fashion so that we would build the customer affinity and we would also not lose the integrity of the brand. People would know us. So, you know, when you, when you, when you go down, you know, and across the United States and you move into the, you know, before we went to the West Coast, it took us years and years and years, even though the West Coast was just such an important market for us. But we waited years out before we did that because we wanted to have that, that, consistent growth across the United States. And within each market, we wouldn't open a market unless we knew we were able to open three stores within the first 12 months, again, to try to create the, and also from an operational perspective and a logistics perspective, you can't discount that as well. It's not just cultural. What ends up happening is your distribution center when you're a Northeast retailer is on the East part of the United States and you have to get your goods. If you're going to start shipping goods across the United States to the West Coast, now your delivery points are going to be significantly further away and it's going to tax your organization. But if you do it more in a systematic path, then you're able to move your DCs with you as you kind of traipse across the United States. So it sounds like you had your user manual in place before you got started on expansion. Terry, as you guys were thinking about expansion, I think one of the most impressive things you mentioned is you were at $100 million in EBITDA. And I think that's important to think about as company scale, because there's a big difference between scaling top line and scaling profitability. And when you thought about scaling this business, it sounds like profitability was very top of mind for you. Can you talk a little bit about what that user manual looked like for you as you were thinking about building a business that was not only growing, but growing profitably? Sure. I think it's important to note that the, the, the model, the business is a little bit different than the two gentlemen to my right. This is a licensing model. And so when we talk about scaling, we're primarily talking about scaling through acquisition. 
Um, it's not scaling through offering a new product, right? So we would look at buying a new brand as a way of scaling the operation of the business. And for that analysis, really, I mean, it does, it, it does come down to, you know, sort of the intangible value of the brand and, and, and what you think you can do with it. And, uh, ultimately how you think you're going to make money doing that. Right. Um, so that's what, that's what the whole core of the industry is, is owning a series of trademarks and licensing out those marks for revenue for various products and services. And that said, the analysis of whether the brand is valuable or not is obviously a key component of that decision. Um, and what you think you can take it to. So, you know, is it going to fit into, um, if it's a high end brand, you know, you're going to be able to keep it still at Neiman Marcus or, you know, and, and do you want to do that and only have that sort of consumer who goes to the Neiman Marcus stores that exist or, you know, can you take it maybe to a Bloomingdale's and go to a wider distribution and therefore make more revenue? So that's sort of how we would look at it. So now as a company or as a brand, you've written your user manual, you've done the analysis, your gut says go for it, but as we all know, things don't go as planned. So I think as a leader, as future leaders who are listening to you or who are in this room, what is some advice that you would give in managing through times like that? Sean? So if something doesn't work out, that can be for a whole lot of reasons. And I think we talk about uh, in technology, a root cause. Why didn't this work out? Did you hire the wrong person? Did the person change? Did the job change? What, was there some externality that changed? So to really try to get your hands around what happened here, for one thing, you want to be fair to that person the organization, and yourself to learn for what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, every one of these failures is an opportunity to grab something out of it. And so you kind of start to ask yourself some serious questions. Is this person potentially have a role somewhere else in the organization? Can you help them? Or did they completely screw up? And you, there, there are just so many ways that you can look at the problem and it's important to look at them from multiple dimensions and not just think, this guy screwed up, I got to get rid of him. And to really ask yourself the real questions as to what happened. Challenges, many, many over the course of the years. Actually, one of the ones that just comes to mind initially, and I wouldn't even think about it till now. We went, uh, so I joined in 1995. 1995, we were just coming out of a, of a restructuring. We needed a lot of capital. We did a private equity deal. We brought in some money, uh, and then we started to expand and grow the company, and it was a wildly successful year or so, and we started to open up stores 18, 26, 50, and then we decided we were going to go public. Um, so in 1997, I guess I'm dating myself to many in this room, but in 1997, um, we went public, uh, September of 1997 in October, October, I think it was, we missed our first month's earnings, our first month's comp it was on the first press release we had to come out with. So we went public at $14. I think we traded up to 15, 16 at the time. And then October, middle of October, boom, first press release is whatever our expectations were. We did not, we didn't meet the expectations and we got hammered. I mean, the stock went from 14 to four overnight. We got hit with securities, you know, class action lawsuits uh, in a second. Um, so what do we learn from that? And, and I can go through about another 10 just sitting here thinking about all the challenges we had over the times we were there together. But I'll tell you one thing as an organization, and, and it's something that I take with me in my life. It's not just for business. And I apply the same principles personally than I do in life is 
you now you don't look backwards and you look forwards. And if you sit around that room with executives or you sit around that room as a family or if you sit around that room with whoever you sit around that room with and you look backwards and say you should have, you could have, why didn't you, it's a nightmare. And it's only going to bring you down. It's only going to bring you back. And the only way to overcome any obstacle in life, and this was one of them, was, okay, now this is where we are today. What are we going to do to go forward? And we had many of those. We had many of those. Uh, but the leadership that we had at the children's place and the man at the helm, who was a tremendous role model and mentor to me, Ezra Daba, lived that, that life. And that was his approach. And really, he set the tone for the entire organization. So it was never finger pointing and it was never accusations. And it was always, let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath. Okay, now what are we going to do? And if you sat with him and you whined or complained about anybody or anything, he wouldn't hear it because it was all about positive and what I can do to move the business forward. And that's how we thought. And that's what really took us through all the hard times. I, I agree. Um, one one of the things one one of the things that happened when I first got to Authentic Brands was they asked me to write my own job description because it was a new company and nobody had one. So I wrote um, janitor with a law degree, <laughs> and and that's what the job is, right? So every time something goes wrong, you're going in there to clean it up, whatever it is. And I think that the most important thing to take from that is is in any crisis maybe try to not deal with the responsibility of, you know, who's at fault and what the situation is. I think, you know, you deal with the crisis and you just figure out what it is that you need to do to get you to the next day or the next week or the next month or the next quarter. Um, and then with a clear head and a calmer sort of vibe, right, sit back and figure out what went wrong and is it fixable or not? And, and does that person need to go or does that system need to change or, you know, what that is? The drama. The drama <laughs> is a disaster. It kills you. So, Steve, you mentioned, you know, it's about tone. It's about culture. It's about leadership. How do you continue to maintain that tone as you scale this business and that culture? Because I think it's very easy to have a certain culture and it's very easy to do peanut butter and jelly national day and all of that when you have a team of 20. How do you do that when you have a team of 2,000? Yeah. Uh, we had big teams. And, and in fact, you know, one thing I was just thinking about as well is when we bought the Disney store chain, we, we inherited a 400-store chain with a very different culture, very, very, very different culture. And the question was now, how do we integrate these two businesses? And what we decided as an organization that the only part of the business that we were really going to integrate was going to be the back office. So operations was integrated. Real estate was in integrated. HR was, well, not even HR really wasn't integrated. Uh, a bunch of the uh, finance, let's say, was integrated. But the store teams and the store and, and the designers for sure and the merchants stayed separate. And what we did was it allowed each of the cultures to really work together and not, not smother each other. And we embraced each other together. And in fact, we used to have district manager meetings where we would bring both of the organizations together to come together, whether it was at Disney World or wherever it was, Arizona one time, where we brought the entire district manager team for both organizations. So you had two, 300 people. And you have the senior management team running events the entire weekend training, yet at the same time doing team building and just making everybody feel part of one team and one whole organization. Thank you. 
Yeah, I'd add something to that. One of the things that happens with a company is that there's a sense of other, right? They're in the other department, the other region, the other this, the other that. And that otherness is a stovepipe that really prevents people from seeing kind of beyond it. So you really want to work very hard to integrate everybody in every department Sure, they need their functional roles, but if, if they feel they're here and it's somebody else's problem and that's over there, then you're never going to get the cohesiveness that you want. So how about yourself, Terry? As you were cleaning up the messes, how did you as a leader continue to keep that culture positive? Because you saw all of the negative. I, I, I assume so. Um, <laughs> I assume so. I, I don't know that I was I don't know that I was successfully able to do it and, and certainly it wouldn't have been just me, but I can tell you that within my own department I made it a point of you know in, involving my immediate reports and decision making. And I think as the company grows much the same way you'd expect an executive to be able to scale their capabilities to go from managing, you know, one store to five stores, five stores to fifteen. I think, you know, you have to look at your team in that way, too, and understand that they may all need to have a little bit of a different skill set um, in order to succeed as the company rises, right? Because in theory, it's taking everybody with it. Um, and so to make sure that they're ready to take that wave when it comes, you know, it's, a, it's, it's about mentoring and it's about training them and it's about talking to them and it's about passing on what works for you when you manage them and whatever those tricks are. And hopefully you're successful and therefore they are. So you hit upon something really important, mentoring. We'd love to hear how each one of you leveraged mentors in your lives to help you manage through the ups and downs, to manage through the scaling of your business and the scaling of your careers. Love to start with you, John. So mentoring has been very important because when I started, you know, telephones, computers, these were relatively new concepts and there really was not, there was no internet. There was um, really, you were kind of on your own and having the right people around you was everything, uh, not just important, it was essential. So I tried to find people who I could relate to and then put some effort into, well, what could I do for them? They're doing so much for me and try to make myself useful to guys and say, well, I learned a little bit about this in this area and a little bit of this in that area. And maybe if I had a couple of mentors, I could kind of get in the middle and try to help them understand what the other one was, was saying to me. So try to create a little bit of a community among people who I respected, but try to be useful and give something back to those who, who have helped you. Yeah. I mean, at Children's Place, we actually, I mean, I'm really focusing on Children's Place, although there were other organizations but that, I, that I've been integrally involved with. But from a mentorship program, I think from, from a cultural perspective, it was probably the only company that I was really, you kind of lived the dream. You know, it was it was the it was the the dream of what everybody tries to do when they sit down and they start that business or they start that drive. And it's like, wow, how can I scale this? How can I make it big and large and successful and have fun at the same time? And it really is a dream. And although there's been successes subsequent, um, but to really say that they've been um, uh, 
um, satisfying to the level that that th- those were. You know, and it might just be a once in a lifetime type of a thing. It might be a once in a lifetime type of uh, event that you try to recreate and you try to recreate, um, and maybe you never get to see it again. But you have to enjoy the ride while you're going through the ride, and you have to uh, like what you're doing. Surround yourself with people that are important to you that you want to be around day in and day out and have the same vision and the same passion that you have as you try to build. And then the mentorship, who's the role model, who's the mentor and the mentee, I don't know. I mean, but if, because if you like the people around you, you, you mentor each other and, you, and you're friends with each other and you respect each other, whether it's a subordinate or a peer or a colleague or a boss. I mean, I think if everybody looks at each other in that same light with that same filter on, then I think uh, I think it's just a happier environment, and when people are happy, they perform. My my mentor, uh, I found completely haphazardly. I was in a absolutely devastating place in my career, and um, and and this music lawyer uh, decided to teach me what he knew, um, and. I think, you know, I'm not, I don't practice in that area anymore necessarily. It's not my main practice area, but I can tell you that <laughs> there are nuggets of wisdom that follow me. Um, and my all time favorite is Terry. It's a clerk's world. We just live in it. If they want it stapled instead of paper clipped, just do it. <laughs> um, and things like that. I mean, he was just, he, he, he was really, he was really great. And I don't think it was a, a, you know, formal discussion, will you be my mentor or <laughs> any sort of thing like that. I feel like today we think that that's a lot more of a rehearsed or, right. I don't know, it was a lot more natural. And, and um, I thank him all the time. I often call him on Wednesdays to make sure he's gotten his split pea soup. <laughs> um, and uh, as far as reaching out um, to others to be mentored, I think, again, it's much more of a natural flow of things. You know, there's somebody within your environment. Hopefully they work in your department. Hopefully they work for you. You have a affinity for one another. Um, I generally, um, feel a, a special responsibility for females, um, who work at the company, whether they're in my division or not. Um, n- knowing sort of how difficult it can be to be seen, um, and, you know, I, if I think you're smart and I think you're good, I'm going to give you my time. Well, thank you all for the invaluable advice. I know we could continue this conversation for ages, but we are going to take a break and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Entrepreneurista. A woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. 
It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneursapodcast.com. Now we're ready for questions from the audience. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Brandon McKenzie. I'm founder and CEO of a company called Metro Butler. We're a short-term rental management company in New York, like a front desk for Airbnbs, if you will. And this question is for Stephen. Uh, I couldn't help but notice a little hint of irony in that you were talking about uh, scaling when you move strategically to new markets. You have to set up three stores. You have to you know, deal with supply chain logistics, this, that, the other. And this is an event that's sponsored by Notel. So when I think about that, there's this emerging ecology of flexible real estate, right? And I'm very curious, now that you're probably charged with continuing to scale your business, how that affects you guys, either positively or negatively. Well, I mean, I think the real estate, I mean, the retail business to say the, the traditional bricks and mortars business is nothing to what it was in the past. Um, so I, I think that theory of that, probably that chameleon, which is the, the, the word we use, not chameleon, the crab-like growth, which is the, 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 the tagline that we use as we grew the company across the United States, might not be a valid approach today, although it was valuable back then. Today, as you're growing bricks and mortars, the fact that you need to be um, bricks and mortars and bricks and clicks at the same time, it's, it's a very different model and you need to adapt to the different time period. So I, I don't think necessarily that that, um, that that necessarily is uh, the right approach today to, in order to take. However, you have many brands today, e-commerce brands that are looking to scale and looking to grow and looking to open up stores. But the opportunities are endless today because of the downturn in the in the traditional mall environment to downtrend in some of the street locations in the city, the, especially in Manhattan now when real estate is kind of tapped out. You walk up and down Broadway and you go up and down Fifth Avenue and you'll see a lot of you know vacant stores. There are a lot of opportunities. Look at this right here, right? In this space, there's a lot of opportunities for people to test their wares in order to do those pop-up type stores. So there's tremendous opportunity that didn't exist in the past. I was working with uh, General Growth on a on a on a startup concept where they were basically giving me a very 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 attractive deal for a client of mine to pop up a store in their mall because the mall was downtrending. So it was a very very advantageous time. So I think in the marketplace today retail, bricks and clicks. I think that um, it's an exciting time and it's, it's an it's an exciting time because the marketplace is changing so dramatically that if you're in front of it and you're out there, I think there's tremendous opportunity for, for companies. Um, hi, my name is Marie Chestnut and I run uh, growth and operations for um, my company named CareerList. And uh, what we do is um, we uh, have built a marketplace for um, vetted talent to connect um, in a closed membership environment with top leaders um, across sales, marketing, and strategy marketplaces. Um, so, um, what I would uh, what I would ask actually the entire panel um, is in a market, um, and you've had different experiences. Um, you know, whether it's retail or licensing, um, in uh, and I think this can apply to almost um, any business, but when you're entering into a very competitive marketplace, whether it's 
um, you're selling a tangible product or you're selling a service, brand awareness um, from the startup stage becomes one of your primary, um, I would say, like uh, blockers to growth. Um, so how do you get into um, or how would you approach a new marketplace, whether it's a geography, um, like what you mentioned about, um, you know, the children's place, um, or whether it's um, an entire, um, you know, a new industry where there is quite a lot of competition um, and what you're providing has a differentiation point, but um, still needs to be invested in um, from a startup budget? I First, I think never underestimate the value of a cold call, um, which I think is actually something that really needs to be said with the uh, you know, startups being run by a different generation. You know, when you're trying to get yourself in front of an established company to make them see you over 12 other things, call, call the CEO, call the chief technology officer. You know, um, I think that you'll be surprised how far that those things sometimes will get you. Um, and make sure you've got your elevator pitch for that call, right? When that happens, um, you, you need one big fish before everybody else starts seeing that differentiating point for you. And how you get that fish is, I think, by any means necessary, right? So, I don't know, call. Mm -hmm. I, th I think it depends on what the, what the service you're selling or the goods, the type of goods that you're serving. Um, I think uh, today on a, on a, on a string-type budget, a very teeny budget, I think you can get really far, and I think you need to do that through a grassroots. And I think it's, I think there's zero uh, resistance points for people to start new businesses today, where I think 20 years ago, um, if you wanted to start an apparel company, if you wanted to start a retail company, if you wanted to start to sell anything, there were financial barriers to entering into a marketplace. And today, those barriers have really come down, and I think the, the world is open to everybody. And I think the way to start with a, with, a, with a newer brand or a newer product is through the grassroots. And I think you can get tremendous publicity out there, grassroots, with not necessarily a lot of money. And obviously, it has to take on, and it has to be real, and it has to be a real product that people like and get behind it. But I think the ability to, to make something relevant really quickly today didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Now, I'm going to add something a little, a little in between the, the two to really understand the ecosystem that you're operating in. All of the who are the major players here? Who controls what little segment that you can get into? So if you can figure out a little niche within a big organization, a big industry, how can I exploit that niche as fully as possible? And so you find the few people who actually know it, you get them through cold calls, go kind of from the top down as well as from the bottom up, and try to surround yourself surround them with things that would be of interest to them. So it's know exactly what niche you're operating in and do the honest competitive analysis, not just what you want to believe, but what really is out there. Hi, everyone. First of all, thank you so much. As I'm listening to you, I realize the importance in leadership of emotional maturity. I feel like each one of you came to really be honest and upfront with us about the challenges. So I thank you for that. And I guess my question is, so I am my own brand. And so obviously you've talked about scalability when it is mass market business and a lot of, like you said, wonderful talent coming to the fore. 
I am in a position right now. So I'm, I'm an advocate, human first, um, women and people with disabilities. And really my job is to be myself. And there's really no line between my personal and professional life, I find. And I like it that way. That's fine. I've signed up for that. Um, but my question is, because I'm finding right now, so I started out running these workshops at NYU, small, and then speaking a bit more, and now, you know, very much involved in fashion and disability and different, um, you know, technology, assistive technology, all these different things, and they happen very organically. Um, but I'm in a position right now where suddenly I am in a huge expansion point where I'm not only starting my own business, but a nonprofit and writing a book and all these different things that I had been kind of putting on the back burner because I was like, I'm not ready yet, maybe not emotionally mature enough at a different point in my life. Um, my question is, how do you deal with time management and when the expansion is one person becoming more of a brand? I'm just curious if you have any advice for that, and how do you manage your time? I have a notebook. <laughs> Thank you. Not kidding. There's one for every day of my life uh, since I started practicing law, which is a really long time ago. Um, I have a notebook, and I write everything in it, and it's amazing how valuable that is when you are you know, miles away from the office and you need to call someone who's there and just say there's a phone number, and I wrote it down somewhere in the week of July 11th, and it's in the book. I, I need that number now. Um, so, so the notebook is invaluable and I, I've, I've taught everybody I've ever mentored to use one. The other thing is, is get a personal assistant, start with a personal assistant because that person can do the things like, you know, get your mail, get your groceries and do other things. There are freelance personal assistants that you can hire. Um, I would start there, find somebody you can rely on. My freelance personal assistant actually became my professional assistant, um, over the course of time, but Start there. And I would do a, an amazing job at prioritizing. Because we're all busy and we wear many different hats and we have different engagements and consultants and practices and family commitments and everything else you have. But you can't, you can't possibly and physically, sometimes you're just limited by the amount of resources you have as a human being to be successful. So if you spread yourself too thin, you might not be successful at any of them. So what I would do is pick the low-hanging fruit, knock those off, be successful, and then build off of that and build off of those successes. Quick wins and then build. Get some wins in your sales. Sounds like you have, but have that and perpetuate that. Yes. Um, I would add to that, you really need to be focused because it's very hard to do 10 things really, really wonderfully. To the degree you can pick the ones that really matter, not in the moment, but matter long-term, they may be the harder ones. Maybe you can only take a little bite out of it each day. Um, but there's a, a time management technique called Pomodoro, which I kind of like. It's a little tomato timer. And you set it to whatever, 18 minutes seems to be a, a popular number, but you can use anything you want. And for that 18 minutes, you only do that one task. No cell phones, no emails, no chats, no nothing. That's what you're going to do until that timer goes off. And that's been helpful for some. Great. Thank you to the audience for your questions. I wanted to thank the panel one more time for the wonderful insights. I'm sure everybody in the room learned a lot. And thank you for being here tonight.
This has been Fashion Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.